If you've been uh, gone this summer already, I know a lot of you, I've talked to a few folks in and out. Summer's kind of crazy, so this might be your first time here in the next two or three weeks. We started three weeks ago. This is actually the third week of a series we'll be going through the end of August, talking about the book of Job. And uh, we've had a lot of fun with the first two weeks, uh, talking about some things, that uh, a couple of lessons that we learned. Uh, one of the key verses, in a sense, that we looked at actually is at the end of the book of Job. As I read, prepared for the, for the series, I read through the whole book of Job and tried to look at it in context. And it was one verse that stood out to me, leaped out to me at the very end in chapter 42, uh, that uh, is really the key verse that we come back to every week that kind of I look at that filters everything else as I look at the book of Job. It's in 42.12. It says, As the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. And when I thought about that, I thought, well, it means then, when it says that, it means that God blessed all of his life. Now, the latter part was more blessed than the former part, but the former part was blessed too, even all the junk that he goes through in chapters 1 and 2, and all the ribbing he goes through, and all the harassment he goes through in chapters 3 through 37 with his friends, our friends, and, uh, and then we look at chapters, the last few chapters and, and see how it all wraps together. But we've, we shared it. So that's been kind of the filter through which we've looked at everything in this book of Job and which we'll continue to do so. Next week, uh, Chris uh, genders our student pastor and our summer intern, Justin Rowell, is going to be sharing a message from the book of Job. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be at our denominational convention starting this Wednesday for a few days in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So be in prayer for that as we, uh, we're in the process of making some uh, very positive changes in our denomination. And so hopefully uh, they'll be uh, well-received. Change is always something that's uh, not always well-received. Uh, and so, uh, but I think this is something that pastors have been talking about for a good while. And so we look forward to that as well. So anyway, uh, but the last couple of weeks I've enjoyed teaching out of, out of the book of Job, uh, talking about two particular things. Uh, the two things that we talked about, two keys to living the blessed life, that we've already seen so far is two weeks ago, we talked about this, this key, don't give up on the God who has never given up on you. We looked at the book of Job when we saw how, God, uh, how Job continued to stick with God through all the ups and downs of life. Don't give up on the God who has never given up on you. And that's one key to a blessed life. And the second key we looked at last week is to stop making excuses and start making a difference. Don't waste your life. That God has a purpose for our life. And Job saw that really clearly, that through all the ups and downs of life, in a real sense, he saw this vivid, clear image that God had a purpose for his life in everything. And I shared with you that what we can learn from that is that God wants us to understand what our purpose is. And last week I talked about three key terms that I wanted you to struggle with, in a sense, go and think about, uh, and, uh, and to help you to understand what your purpose is in life as well. And so if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, what I'd encourage you to do is to go uh, online at www.greatoakscc.org and uh, look at our podcast, and you can listen to those two messages and kind of bring you up to speed because it all kind of fits together as a package deal. And today I get to talk to you about a different subject, but I think probably one of the most key areas that we see and one of the keys to Job's understanding of what it means to live a blessed life, and I think one of the keys to ours as well. Um, have you ever had an uncomfortable conversation with somebody? Yeah. I mean, if, you have, if you're a parent and you have kids, you know, uh, you know and they get become like junior high age, you have that talk. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you don't know. No, my kids are too little. Uh, my wife did all the talking in our family. So anyway, uh, she was a school teacher. I figured she knew how to talk better than I did in regard to those areas. But, uh, but you know, you had talks, or you've had talks, uncomfortable conversations where you had to kind of like just lay out some things to somebody. Well, today, in a sense... I'll just be honest with you right up front, this is probably a little more uncomfortable than the last two weeks. 
But I think it's the most important of all the things that we'll see in the book of Job in regards to the keys to living a blessed life. Because uh, the last couple of weeks, actually a couple of weeks ago, I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, I, you know, I've shared, uh, I, I believe that humor is a good thing as well. And so a couple of weeks ago, one of the guys went out the door and he said, Pastor Bill, you ever thought of being a stand-up comedian? And I'm going like, I don't think I was that funny. You know, I don't understand. But maybe he thought, I, my daughter's back there saying, no, nah, you weren't that funny. Uh, <laughs> Well, anyway, whoever, somebody thought I was funny, honey. Okay. So anyway, uh, but the deal is, the deal is, is that this is not probably, uh, this is a little more uncomfortable because it's straightforward. I'm going to talk about money today. Talking about money. One of the keys, one of the key blessings that we see, one of the key holdups in life to keep us from living a blessed life is our attitude toward resources. And in Matthew 6, 24, it says this, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Uh, so let me just tell you this right up front. So if God, if your, if your God is money, your little G, God is money, and, and your main focus in life is just to make money, make money, make money, uh, today's going to be kind of tense for you because I'm going to take your God and smack it in the face. That's what I'm going to do. Because that's what Scripture does. It says, you know, it's just what it says in Scripture right there. It says, you cannot serve both God and money. It's not saying that money's bad. It's just simply saying the love of money is the problem we have. Because Jesus constantly said this. He said that money is the number one competitor for your heart. Money is the number one competitor for your heart. And so we have to deal with that in a real sense in our attitude. So when we read the book of Job, though, sometimes we get the wrong impression. And I want to kind of like uh, maybe give you the right impression, I think, of what the book of Job's talking about in context. We have to always read Scripture in context because you can take parts of Scripture out of context and, and make it mean all kinds of things. So I, if you have your Bible this morning, uh, what I'd encourage you to do is take and turn to the, the book of Job. We'll be looking at Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 42, okay? Those two, pass, two, two chapters in the book of Job. Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 42. Okay, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, In the land of Uz... I don't know where the land of Uz was. I don't know if anybody knows where the land of Uz was, but none of us lived there, right? Uz? Don't know where it's at. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. Blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. It sounds like a pretty good description. You know, if somebody could say something about you, would that be a good description Would you like to have? That you were blameless and upright, you feared God and shunned evil. And, and, and that sometimes we think fearing something is bad, but there, is, is there a healthy fear for something? Yes. I mean, we want, want our kids not to have a healthy fear of certain things, right? We don't want our kid to go in and place their face on the, on the hot stove, right? We want to have a healthy fear of that. We don't want them to, you know, there's all kind of healthy fears that keep us out of trouble. But the Bible says that we're to fear God, to have this awe, this reverence, this fear, but God is not your best buddy. He's God. And because of that, we have to treat him as God, and, and we have to have this reverence, this awe of God. That's what, that's what it describes Job as being. He says he had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep. How many sheep did he own? This is important now. Okay, this is a test. How many? 7,000. Okay, three, he had uh, 3,000 camels. Keep that in mind. 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. He had a lot of stuff. Lots of stuff. Uh, and had a large number of servants. And that day, that's how you measured wealth, was in donkeys and sheep and cattle and all that kind of thing. And it says he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. That's what it says in chapter 1. And then if we've read, if you've read through, I encourage you to read through the book of Job. Just the first two chapters, you learn some things, especially in chapter 1. What happens with all the stuff? 
What happens with all the stuff? This is not a hard question. He loses it all, okay? Everything is just taken away, everything. Chapter 2, his health's taken away. We talked about that as well last week. So he had all this stuff going on in his life. He loses everything. He had all this stuff, and he had it all taken away. But then we get to chapter 42 at the end of the book of Job, and then we read these words. It says, and this is the verse that we've looked at as the key verse, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. Then it says this, he had 14,000 sheep. How many do you have in chapter 1? Seven. Doubled. Okay. He had 6,000 camels, twice as much as in chapter 1. He had 1,000 yoke of oxen, twice as much, 1,000 donkeys, twice. So he was, man, he got a lot more stuff now. And then it says he also had seven sons and three daughters, which we learned in chapter 1. He lost his first seven sons and three daughters. God didn't multiply that. I don't know why. Maybe 10 is enough. I don't know. But uh, I would say it's enough. But the issue is, the issue is, he had that. So, we read those verses and we take it totally out of context and we're thinking, well, blessing, you know, the reason that Job was so blessed is because he was this godly man, he was this upright man, and God gave him more stuff. That was the blessing, right? That's what prosperity theology will teach you, which is a false theology that says if you follow God and have faith in God and trust in God, God will give you more and more and more and more. But if you read the Bible as a whole, that's not what it says. So what does it say? Well, I think you have to go back to chapter 1. And, and, and let me share with you a couple of verses there that give us a key, some keys to why Job was blessed and why this was an important area of his life. For, cha- for instance, chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. This is what it says about his life. He says, after he's this upright man, he says, His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, and this was a big party time, I guess, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, Job would, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each and every one of his, of them thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Job was a guy who feared God enough and had enough awe and reverence for God that he wanted to make sure that his kids were on track with God as well. It was an important thing for him and so he would spend a lot of his resources uh, trusting in God and going through, in that day, what was called a sacrificial system to make, thing, make sure that everything was correct between he and God and his kids and God. That's kind of how it worked in that day. Job was a giver. He gave, sacrificially gave uh, of, of his stuff, and you see that throughout the book of Job. Because Job understood this one thing, that everything was from God. And then, it, remember, at the end of the chapter 1, after he's lost everything, we read all the stuff where he's lost, and all these people come to him and say, you've lost this, you've lost this, you've lost this, and you just add up everything, you lost everything. At the end of chapter 1, verse 20, this is what it says. At this, after he lost everything, at this, Job got up and tore his robe, and he shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I said the first key to living a blessed life is to don't give up on the God who's never given up on you. The second is stop making excuses and start making a difference. The third key I see in Job and I see in this passage is this. Job's attitude towards stuff in life is one of the key to the blessed life. Job understood this, that he was a steward. Job said, I am a steward. I'm a manager of resources and God is the owner. I am a manager. God is the owner. Because after he lost everything, this is when he says this. This is what he says. He's at his low point from as far as a financial base. He's going, yeah, I didn't have anything when I came into the world. I go out of the world with nothing. I'm still going to praise God in the midst of this. It has nothing to do with the, how much stuff I've got. 
His attitude was that. He, he learned that in life. And one of the struggles is we read through the New Testament and Old Testament as well. We understand this, that everything I have is God's. Everything. God created all things. The owner always tells the steward, the manager, what to do. God has ownership. Everything we have is on loan. You don't pick and choose. And, and the other thing is this. So often we like to pick and choose which areas in, in God we trust, trust God with. For instance, you know, we want to say, God, I want to trust you for my salvation. I want to trust you for my eternity. I want to trust you for this area, that area. But then we say, God, well, I'm not really sure I want to trust you in this other area, the teachings that you have there about that. And so I want to talk this morning about three decisions. I want to personalize this this morning, talk about three decisions that I've made in my life that go along with this that, that help me to understand and direct my life in regards to money and resources. And these are all biblically-based decisions that not only I have to make, but every one of us has to make sometime during our life. Number one, the first decision I made many, many years ago was I put God first in my finances through tithing. Through tithing. I, I was just watching the other day. I, any of you football fans? Football season's coming up. You know that? All three of you. No, I mean, there's a bunch of you football fans. Okay, yeah, yeah. And you're football fans of all kinds of schools, and I saw a K-State fan back there. I don't, what are you? Bears fan. Okay, Bears fan, okay. Uh, pro football. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a college football fan, and I was looking at the rankings. You know what? I was looking at the rankings because I want to see where my team is. You know, my team is Virginia Tech Hokies. Virginia Tech's been in the top 25 for the last almost 15, 20 years. Guess where they're not at this year? They're not there. They had a really bad year. And then to make matters worse, I looked at it and I looked at who was number one and who Tech is playing the first game of the season. Alabama. I'm going like, are you guys like suicidal? I mean, is, is that the problem with you guys? And so I looked at it. You know, everybody wants to be number one, right? Everybody wants to be number one. Very rarely do we remember who was number two. You know, because that's what we call the first loser. You know, it's, it's kind of the deal. But, you know, everybody wants to be number one. Well, let me tell you something about God. God doesn't want to be number two. He doesn't want you to have a ranking system. His top, the top ten things that's important in your life, and Him to be just in the top ten. God wants to be number one in all things in your life. And because He understands that, that any time we put anything else in our life as number one, it'll only lead us to frustration and to heartbreak. Always. So God, because he loves us so much, he wants us to be, understand that he wants us to be, he wants to be number one in our life. And one of the ways he wants to do that is through our finances, because he teaches us that. He tells us how important that is. It says in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it says this in Leviticus 27. It says, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. What's a tithe? A tithe is 10% of your gross income that you're to give to the local church. You're going like, well, where's that come from? It comes through Scripture. I'll talk about that in a minute here, okay? It's not something Bill made up. Is it because the church needs it? No. No, it's not because the church needs it. It's because God wants you to live a blessed life. And he wants you to live a life free from the stress and the strains and stuff of, of finances, which causes more stresses and strains than almost anything else in all our life. Would you agree with that? Worry about money? I mean, how many of, uh, how many of you this week thought about, didn't think about money one time? Didn't think about money one time the whole week? Thank you. See, money's important. I, I don't know if there's anything else 
that all of us could agree upon that we didn't think about this week. But money's important in our life. Now, I know there's pushback when I talk about this whole thing of tithing. There's some of you will say, well, that's Old Testament, Pastor. Well, let me explain something. You say, I'm a New Testament guy. I'm a grace person. Good for you. Guess what? Your standard is even higher. You didn't think so, did you? Let me tell you, you know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, you know, it says in the law, in the Old Testament, it says you should not murder. What does Jesus say about that in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, yeah, you shouldn't murder, but you shouldn't even be angry with another person. He says, you know, the, the law says you should not commit adultery, right? But, but what, Jesus, what does Jesus say about adultery? He says, about that. He says, yeah, you shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't have lustful thoughts about someone else. See, grace goes, Jesus goes a lot further than the law. And so the thing is, so often is, we, we just want to have this, we, we kind of try to play games with God. We're going, God, well, I have this really, you know, I'll really be obedient in this area. Man, God, I'll read my Bible every day for five, five hours. Or I'll do this. And we try to play, play games with God. And with, like, like, if we have radical obedience in one area, that it makes up for our un- disobedience in another area. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way because God wants us to, Jesus died on the cross to impact our entire life which includes our finances. And his, and his thing for teaching us how to do that and how to just give it to him and, be, and, and trust him is the tithe. Is there something special about 10%? No, Jesus could have said, give me 90%. But he said 10%. And I've heard people say, well, I'm not ready to tithe yet. Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you have kids? How many of you have kids? How many of you were ready to have kids? No, you weren't. One person raised their hand. I know you were. Okay, two of you. Okay, okay. Maybe you were. Okay. Well, but you know, let me explain, explain something to you. Very few of us. We're, when you have kids, it's still a leap of faith, right? Do you have the whole thing planned out? How it's going to work between now and eighteen? No. You don't know how it's going to work. You take this leap of faith. You go for it, right? It's the way it is with tithing. You'll never be ready. People say, "Well, I can't afford it." Don't talk to me about that. I'll, I'll, I'll put you in touch with some people in this church who've gone through stuff and, 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 and still trusted God and still were blessed by God. I would tell you a story, but I get the permission to tell it, so I'll just do it later. I'll tell you later. But anyway, the issue is this. Jesus says, you know, if you wait until you're ready to tithe, you never will. And then it says this, and, and, and this is where I, I told you about what it says about giving to the, to the local church. It says in Malachi 3, it says, The Lord do not, says this, do not, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from your, my decrees and have not kept them. He's talking about this disobedience they have. Then he says this, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. And then he says, how do we do that? And he says, did you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. And then it says this, which I don't like too much. He says, because you're robbing me, you are under a what? A curse. You're under a curse. Your whole nation, because you're robbing me, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. He says, the place that you're, nowhere in scripture does it say the word of tithe anywhere else other than the local church. 
It's not because of local church needs. It's because of the place that you can be connected and have, and have some, some input into as well. And you can trust it. If you don't trust Great Oaks, go find you another church that you can trust. Pretty soon we'll have our budget out there and it'll have, be out there. You can, you can read through it, see what's going on with it, where we spend every penny. We have audits. We do all the stuff that we need to do to make sure that everything's accountable. We have a whole team of people. It's not one person. I have nothing to do with finances here. Zero. And the thing is, I think that's good because we have this team of people who, who will look over that. The thing is, is that we under, understand that God says this is the place where we bring uh, first, okay? And then he says this. I love the next part. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields. Uh, will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. You know what God's saying there? He's saying, you cannot outgive me. You can't do it. You can't outgive me. Let me tell you something, folks. From day one, one of the decisions I made, and I was taught this by my parents, and, and they did it, and they still do it, is that I give my first 10% of my income to God. And I do it because I trust Him. And, and based on what it says here in Scripture, it's, you know, I believe that God can do more with the 90% that's blessed than the 100% that's cursed. You know, and you're saying, well, that's, that's the Old Testament. Well, let me tell, like, tell you what Jesus said about it. Jesus, in Matthew 23, 23, says this. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of, of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest amount from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, faith. Then he says this. Jesus says, you should tithe. Who said this? Jesus. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. He said it's not just about that. He said, but yeah, you should do that. But it's more. Once again, Jesus went beyond. So when did I decide to do this? I decided from day one because my parents taught me that. First job I ever had as a newspaper boy when I was 15 years old. And it's never been a thing that I've ever questioned. It's always been a habit. Something I do from day one. Why? Because of Scripture and because of my parents. And I can tell you, I can tell you over and over and over again stories of people who told me that, that, that even through tough times and good times, as, as they've trusted God with their income and, and tithe and given that as, as, the first, as the first fruits from their income, that what happens is they can tell me, tell stories about how God, in a sense, has helped them through those times. He helped me through. I mean, I, I cannot believe in, in seminary, when I was a seminary student, a graduate student, Vicki and I had just gotten married. When our honeymoon came back from our, came back from our honeymoon and the next day moved to to Wake Forest, North Carolina. Borrowed a guy's van. Stuck all our stuff in it. He wanted a whole lot of stuff. And we went there and moved into a trailer. And we lived there for a few months, and then some things happened, and, and I'm going like, God, you know, what's the next step? And God opened up another door. The whole time, we hardly made any money at all. But we made it through. And I cannot tell you how many times during those seminary years, those three years, all of a sudden we'd get checks in the mail from anonymous Sunday school classes and people at our home church who were generous. And we didn't ask for anything. They were just back praying for us. And some way through prayer, they'd be prompted to give. And it brought, every time it was exactly what we needed. It wasn't a whole lot more. I'd go, you know, that was great. That $200 was great. How about five? No, no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> You're thinking that, Right? Let's get a little cushion here, God, so we don't have to trust you quite as much. 
But no, that was the way it is. But I can tell you that time and time again. So one of the, one of the things in life that I've decided is this. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust him with everything. And one of the things that he wants me to trust him with is with my finances. It's reduced stress hugely. And he's been faithful through all these years. A second decision I made financially is to get out of debt and stay out of debt. Get out of debt and stay out of debt. Any of you ever made it? Don't raise your hand, by the way, when, you, when I ask this. Okay, I'm raising my hand just as an illustration. How many of you ever made a bad financial decision? <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine. You know, that may be something we all agree about, too. Okay, or maybe there is two things we can agree about. You know, bad financial decision. I bought something you shouldn't have bought. You know, uh, maybe you, you drove to church today in, in your bad financial decision. <laughs> maybe you're living in your bad financial decision. I don't know what it is. You know, what, whatever it is, uh, we've all probably made small or large bad financial decisions. Um, years ago, I learned from two guys who are no longer around. I don't think. I know one of them's dead. The other one, I think, is dead. Ron Blue and Larry Burkett. They were way, they were post, uh, or pre, excuse me, they were pre-Dave Ramsey people, kind of. You know, now everybody knows Dave Ramsey nowadays, uh, the financial guru, Christian financial guru. But these were guys that taught the same principles years ago, but not quite as well as, as Dave Ramsey does. Even nowhere near as entertaining. And, um, and one of the things I found out, and Dave Ramsey's favorite verse, and one of the favorite verses I've learned as well is in Proverbs 22.7, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. And basically I learned this, you know, yeah, while I trust in God and give him the first 10%, the tithe, I learned this, I learned you, can, you can't give God 10% and then be dumb with the other 90. You know, it's like, well, I'll just give God 10% and everything else. I can just spend the other 90 any old way I want to. You know, put everything on credit. Do stupid, stupid stuff all the time, right? That really works. No, God has principles in his word about how you do stuff, and that's what financial peace talk, talks about. We just finished the financial peace class. Proverbs 21.20 says, In the house of the wise are stores of, of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all that he has. So often we're like the person who decides on a, one morning to get up and says, I'm going to lose weight today. I mean, I'm going to start my weight control program. And then that afternoon they ate Twinkies. You know, or Ho-Hos or whatever they happen to be, you know. Do we even have those anymore? I don't know. You know, we went out of business and went back in business. I don't know. Whatever. But uh, Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. I can guarantee this, if you are in debt and, and you have financial bondage, you didn't get there by following Jesus' principles. Didn't happen. But I can tell you this, you can get out of that by following biblical principles. And if you don't know how to do it, get a little card out, I don't care what it is, piece of paper, and said, I want to be in the next financial peace class. We don't have it scheduled, but we'll schedule one. Because we've had them scheduled, we, we took, what, Two-thirds of the church through financial peace two years ago, something like that. A huge number, 250 people, I think, went through financial peace at one time here, Great Oaks. And then since then, we've had classes going all the time, and we just finished another one, I think, this past week. I think it's finished now. And so we have all those things. And so the thing is this, you know, you've got to choose a plan. You've got to follow, not only give God the 10%, but you also have a path to plan to use God's principles for the rest of it. And that's one of the things that helped me and my wife many years ago is understanding how to do that and how to pass those principles along to our kids as well. 
A third thing that I, that I did as well, a third um, choice I made in regard to managing resources is this. I chose generosity over greed. I chose generosity over greed. How many of you would agree? This is, I think we'll agree on this too. Maybe there's maybe three things today we can agree on. How many of you would agree that generally all of us are selfish? You can raise your hand. How many of you have... I was around... They're great, great kids. My grandkids yesterday. Two-year-old and four-year-old. They're good kids. Okay? Great kids. They're perfect kids almost. But you know what I heard several times? Mine. 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 They're probably back in the nursery right now going, mine, mine, mine. And all the kids are fighting each other for whatever one toy it is that I want, you know, because that's the way we are, right? That's just the way we are. We have to choose not to be greedy. But I will tell you this, if you are truly following Jesus, you cannot help to, be, to not become a more generous person. Because if you're truly following Jesus, Jesus will change your heart and you will see people in a different way. I cannot tell you, I mean, I could, I could tell stories for hours about people in this church who have been generous over the years. I mean, I'll never forget a couple of years ago, we were doing Thanksgiving baskets, and there was this one family in the church that took the basket, and what they were doing was taking it to families in the community that needed it, and low-income families, and they came across this one family, this couple did, and, they, and I get a call from them, and they said, Pastor, I've got to do something about it. I, gotta, I didn't say we, they said, I've got to do something about this. I said, well, tell me what's going on. They would found this father with these two kids living in a little trailer with no heat. It was winter, or late fall, Thanksgiving. All they took, all, all we asked them to do is take a basket to this, this family, just some food. They said, we've got to do something. So over the next couple of months, that family spent hours and hours and hours and, and money and money and money of their own resources helping this family get back on their feet and get them into a house, do all kinds of things. I know of a small group in this church that, that, that got in touch with this one lady that was going through some really down and out times. And, and what happened, this lady didn't go to our church either. It was out in the community somewhere. And this, 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 this group became so... So overwhelmed with all the need that was there, they began to do something about it. They did tons of stuff for this person, helped them get into a, a different apartment. St- we stored their furniture here for a while, did all kinds of stuff for them. There's story after story after story of people being generous because God teaches us to do that. And I just want to tell you, and, and I might be misunderstood in saying this this morning, but I want to tell you something. I practice what I preach, okay? When we came here, Vicky and I came here with our son Keith 11 years ago. We were meeting over in the, in the uh, elementary school. But we owned this property here. We owned just a piece of land. And one of the things we had a vision and a dream for was to have a building someday that we could, we could, uh, could come and do ministry in, to, to worship in and to do things and be our launching point in the community. And so after a couple of years here, we began to make plans, and we were growing this number of people. And so what happened was, is, is we came up and I said, how can we raise the funds? How can we do the things that need to be done to, to raise the funds? Because over a few years before that, the four or five years of the history of the church prior to that, people have been giving into a fund to build a building, but it was not anywhere near adequate to begin to, the process. It would have placed us in too much debt up front. It would not have been sustainable. And so we knew that this f- facility and all the property and everything we had to do would be about $3 million. 
And so the thing was, as we said, we have about three-quarters of a million dollars in people that raise, so we need to raise at least another million so we could at least get our, our mortgage down to what we, was manageable for us, and that was our plan. How can you raise, you know, with, with 200, 250 people, raise a million dollars? I didn't know. And so we begin to pray about, think about it, read scripture about it. And I discovered that there's this process in the Old Testament. And the process was this. When David wanted to raise the funds to build the temple, what he does, he says, he said, I will pledge this first, and the leaders pledge this much, and then we challenge the people to pledge again. So I, I called together about and had together for a dinner about 20 leaders in the church, about 20 leadership families in the church. And we sit down together and we talk about this. And I said, you know, I'm willing to do this up front. And then I said, would you give us well, challenge up front, and so we'll encourage everybody else. And I'll tell you, it was a struggle because when Vicki and I came here, she was a full-time school teacher in Virginia for 16, 17 years before we came here. And when we came here, one of the things we discovered was that just because she had a certification, a natural teacher certification, it didn't, it didn't work in Illinois. We have our own testing procedure and so she would have had to go back to school take all the tests that she had taken 17 years before as we decided you know we'll just trust god for this and we'll just go through this so actually our income reduced by a third our family income was reduced by a third or more maybe 40 percent right off the bat when we came here and this is like two two or three years later we're getting ready for this building thing we're going like how can we what kind of what kind of what do we got to do to give to the church and so we begin to think about it we begin to pray about it and the only fund that we had other than our emergency fund was our college fund for our son. And we'd raised about $20,000, $18,000 to $20,000 in that fund. I can't remember the exact numbers at this point. But we said, you know, if we're going to do something substantial, we're going to trust God, how about let's just give that to God? And so we did. And then we also said we'd like to raise funds over the next uh, three years, you know, ch- pledges as well. Let's, let's raise our giving beyond the tithe. Let's, let's go 15% instead of 10%, which we did. We still do. And I'll tell you, those 20 leadership families responded as well, and, and those 20 leadership families pledged $400,000, 20 families. And they're not all cat managers <laughs> and executives. You know? There were people who believed in what God wanted to do, and they were trusting God with that. I'm just simply telling you this, not to pat myself on the butt, but simply said, I, that was a, a stretch, and somebody would go, well, what would you do with your college fund for your kid? Well, I knew this, and I trusted God with this. God, as much as I love my son and my daughter, and my daughter-in-law, and my son-in-law, and my grandkids, and all that as well, I've got to think through everybody, make sure I miss nobody. Uh, <laughs> as much as I love them, I have a God who loves them more. And I believe that I trusted in God in that part of my finances, that he, and if I followed all the rest of his principles in my life after that, that it'll be all right. It has been. It has been. The only thing we owe money on right now is our house and a little bit of college money we had to borrow from our in-laws, my in-laws. That's it. See, I believe that God, when we choose generosity over greed, God blesses that in a real sense. In Psalm 37, it says this. I was young and now I'm old. Yet I've never, been, never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They were always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. I believe not only do I get to see the blessings in my life, but I get to see the blessings in my kids' life because I'm really proud of my kids in regard to how they handle resources. 
they, they, they follow the principles that God has laid out because they've seen my wife and I do the same thing. I think one of the greatest things you can do besides let your kids know about Jesus Christ and trusting in Jesus Christ is to help them know how to manage resources in a godly way. Because it'll reduce the stress and strain in their life you would not believe. And it has nothing to do with how much you make. It is everything else about your attitude toward your resources. So, I want to end with 1 Timothy 6. It says this in 1 Timothy 6. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, but to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Command those who are rich in this world. You're going like, well, I'm not rich. Yeah, you are. Let me share with you something. How many of you this morning... How many, how many of you last, last night, your car spent the night in, inside? Your car spent the night inside. Got a garage. Is, do you have a garage and you just got too much junk in it and so your car can't spend the night there? Is that the problem? Okay. How many of you got up and, and you know, is the weather cooled down or is it, it gets fall here? Have a little thing in your house that you turn and the heat comes on or the air goes off or comes on? How many of you got that? Anybody here have that? Thought you might. How many of you here have the opportunity, now I'm not saying you're going to do it, but the opportunity and the resources to go out this afternoon after the service and to go somewhere and, have some, and pay for somebody else to fix your food and to serve it to you? How many have that opportunity? You're rich. You're rich. Do you know that if you make $33,000 a year as a family, that you're in the top 1% of wealth in the world? $33,000 a year. Do you know that over 50% of the world lives on $2 a day? Over 50% of the world. We live in a country where we have obesity medication and depression medication for dogs. <laughs> Do you know that? Is something wrong? Now, the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And, and the reason that Job was blessed in his life was because his attitude toward resources, whether he had a lot or a little or nothing, was I'm going to praise God anyway. I'm going to trust God through all this junk. And that's what he did at the end of chapter 1. It's exactly what he did. It's not about him getting all the stuff at the end. Well, God could trust him with stuff, so maybe he did bless him some with some of that as well. But it may not, maybe not be the way all the time. It's not always about getting more and getting more and getting more. The blessings of God is not about more. It's about your attitude toward the stuff. And I see that so clearly in the book of Job. So, this morning, I want you to make three commitments. Three commitments. Number one, if you don't do so already, tithe. Trust God with 10% of your income to him. You're going, how long? Forever. I mean, how many of you would tell your kids, kids, I want you to be obedient, but just for the next three months? <laughs> Number two, get out of debt. If you're in debt, get out of debt. If you don't know how to do it, 
We can get you through a financial peace class. I got people in this church who are financial managers who can help you with that. Don't sit around in debt and let it become a burden to you. Did you know that 60 to 70% of all marriages that fail, fail because of financial pressure? We could save a lot of marriages if we'd handle our resources better. A lot. And finally, be generous. Quit holding on to stuff like this. Hold it on like this. Say, God, what do we do with this? If you don't know what to be generous about, I can give you some examples. Come to me, I'll tell you where you can spend your money. Because God's got all kinds of big plans in this community and around this world for us to go beyond where we are. Yeah, we've got to pay off our debt first. But no, we're not going to do it first. We're going to do it while we do other things. We're going to plant new churches. We're going to develop community ministries. We're going to do all those things. We're going to help people in need. So God said, all opportunities everywhere for us to do that. You see, the subject of the Bible is what? What's the subject of the Bible? Jesus. But you know what the main action word in the Bible is? Give. Give. John 3.16, most famous verse in all Scripture says this. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. He gave the one thing that you and I need. His son, Jesus Christ. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's a giver. If we're to be like God, we're to be givers as well. Job was blessed because of his attitude toward his stuff. Do you want to be blessed? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love and your goodness to us. We pray that you would just allow us this morning just to trust you with all of our life, with our resources, with the things that so often mean so much to us. God, so often we struggle with stuff. We think we have to have more and more and more because that will make us happy. And while some things can give us temporary satisfaction, the reality is, like we talked about last week, we kind of like sometimes we seem to be chasing like ice cream trucks. It gives us a little bit of satisfaction when we catch it, but then it's gone. God, you did not make us to be takers, but to be givers. And when we discover that God in our life and when we begin to allow ourselves to trust you with our resources and follow your plan for our life, God, then what happens is, is that you will, you will, we will live a blessed life. It doesn't mean everything is going to be perfect, but it means everything is going to be different than it could be, and it gives us opportunities, God, of just learning to trust you even more. Thank you for how that's been true and how I've seen that happen in my life and the life of others over the years. Thank you for the people that ex- have ex- ex- discovered that in their lives, God. Guide us now, God, that we would just honor you with all of our lives. And we begin maybe today with just placing our trust in you in regard to our finances. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.